welcome to episode 78 of the 1099 for the week of February 6, 2017. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Renauten, and with me today is the author of Champion of the World, the lead MMA writer for Bleacher Report, and a host of the co-made event podcast, Chad Dundas. Chad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I, I think I have listened to, if not all, nearly all of the co-main event podcast episodes. I'm like currently listening to the Bellator Pact one you just put out, uh, read your book, and yeah, I've been reading your stuff for a while. Like That is my blow smoke up your ass moment of the podcast where I tell you that <laughs> I have been following your work for a long time. So this is really cool. And uh, I mean, speaking of the book, congratulations on writing and publishing your first book because... As a writer myself, I know that whole I'm going to write a book promise is something that keeps getting pushed further and further back the more other things start cropping up. So to actually get yours done while working on another one and having a full-time writing job must be difficult. I mean, what made you finally actually buckle down and say, I'm going to write this goddamn thing? Well, you know, I have a, a, a master's in fine arts and fiction from the University of Montana, which I got in... 2006, uh, which God sounds like an awful long time ago now. Uh, so I've always kind of had fiction as an interest of mine, as something that I wanted to pursue, um, and as a potential career path. As an undergraduate, I actually started out in creative writing, and then after like three months, I had this realization where I thought to myself, you know what? If I'm going to pay for for school, I should. Uh, I should pursue a, a degree that, that might actually earn me a paycheck someday. Uh, so in my infinite wisdom, my master plan to make money was to study journalism instead. <laughs> uh, so I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in journalism and have been kind of working in journalism ever since then. But then when I went back to uh, get a master's in fiction, I kind of redoubled my dedication to that and, and really wanted to pursue it as um, – not necessarily a second career, but just sort of a, an artistic outlet and, and one definitely wanted to see where it would go financially. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things I felt compelled to do. I think people that, that write fiction and write for art's sake couldn't really stop doing it if they wanted to. And I'm one of those people. I just, uh, you know, my mind is, is constantly, whether I want it to or not, kind of like, cataloging story ideas and compelling me to, to take notes on little scraps of paper and stuff like that. So, you know, f fiction has always felt something that I've, it's always been something that I've felt driven to do. Uh, and then I would say, um, probably in about like 2010 or 2011, okay. I, uh, came up with the idea for champion of the world, which ended up being, uh, you know, my, my debut novel that just got published in July of 2016. Uh, and I worked on it for, God, probably close to five years, oh. um, both, both by myself and with a, a bunch of really good and dedicated writers here in Missoula, Montana, where I live, and also for about a year and a half with uh, with my agent. Um, and, and yeah, ended up being fortunate enough to land a a publisher uh, for for that, and feel super, you know, lucky and and blessed to have that happen. But yeah, man, it was about um, I would say from start to finish about five years of work. Jeez. And we had very similar ideas of like how our careers would develop because I was initially creative writing and then was mm -hmm. like, well, if I want to pay the bills, communications, and then I'll just concentrate on journalism. And then hopefully, you know, journalism won't explode and there'll be some sort of online version to make money from this. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's always that like, I eventually want to actually write a novel. So for you, what was your 
book writing process? Because I've always found that fascinating of like, you know, there's like the get started and then you, you know, go to the editing process and gets done and everything in between sometimes is kind of harder to judge. Uh, you're an MMA reporter, a dad, finding time must be rough. You mentioned it took about five years. Like what was your writing routine? Was there like as soon as I am done with my daily MMA stories or reporting or otherwise, I have a certain page count I want to hit or was it something else? Yeah, um, Champion of the World certainly happened in fits and starts. Uh, there would be periods of my life when I would be working on it pretty intently for for you know several weeks, several months, whatever it is, and then periods where I would be forced to drift away from it just because of of professional obligations or personal obligations or what have you. Um, in terms of the actual like nuts and bolts of writing the book. I think that the success of it was actually based on a previous failure that I had. Uh, when I, you know, my second year in graduate school, I tried to write a novel, a historical novel as uh, my final project to get, you know, that, that you have to produce and they stamp it and then you get your degree and, and all that. Um, and I, I did well enough with it to, to graduate, I got I did well enough with it for them to let me out the door. But it, a, as an actual piece of writing, it was kind of a failure. Uh, I ended up writing the first hundred pages or so, probably like a dozen times, um, and eventually just sucked the creative energy out of it and had to sort of put it in a drawer and and never go back to it. I might go back to it at at some point, but yeah. it was just kind of a failure in terms of actual writing. So when I sat down to write Champion of the World, I made this rule for myself that I, was, I wasn't going to go back and read any of what I'd already written until the whole thing was done. Oh, wow. So I just created this uh, entirely, this process entirely focused on forward momentum, that I would just go until it was done, and then I would go back and, and make it all work. Um, and at least for a first novel, I think that that turned out to be kind of uh, exactly the right way to do it, at least for me. Now that I'm working on the second one, I, I've been kind of forced into a slightly different uh, creative process by the you know the continually evolving facts of my life and uh, uh, adulthood. So I'm, I, you know, the second one is is a little bit different, but for the first one, yeah, it was all very much based on forward momentum and and this sort of propulsive energy, just to prove to myself that I could do it, just to prove to myself that I could actually even just create a draft. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I I had no I had no idea that I could even uh, complete an entire first draft as as crappy as it you know ended up being. So like. All those little steps along the way turned out to be pretty big hurdles for me at, at that point, and it was very much just a personal journey of, of proving to myself that I was capable of doing it. When you're kind of barreling through that with the forward momentum where you're like, I'm going to start this, I'm not going to read anything I wrote before and just keep going, does that mean beforehand you really had to map out how this story was going? You're like, I have this thing in my head, I need to just get it out? Or were there a lot of times as you're writing where you took turns you didn't expect? Like, How much was it? a game plan versus this might be a cool direction that on this certain Wednesday, I think works. We're going to take it in that direction. It was a little bit of both. I had the kind of like a loose idea of where I wanted to start and a loose idea of where I wanted to end. Uh, but there were a lot of twists and turns in between and, and very, you know, many of them I didn't foresee until I was knee deep in the thing and kind of rate like a, ma uh, uh, a rat through a maze mm. kind of pursuing this, uh, this plot line and, and, 
you know, a lot of serendipitous things happened while I was writing the book. A lot of uh, different diversions and, and plot devices and stuff that honestly didn't occur to me until the very second that I reached them in my furious typing. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that, I think, was just luck. And, and some of it was uh, choosing the subject matter that was near and dear to my heart. Uh, and, and just kind of naturally opened up all of these pathways of, of thinking and, and writing for me. But yeah, no, I didn't plan, I didn't plan the whole thing out as, as concretely or as, uh, you know, effectively as I would like to pretend that I did. A lot of it was, was through trial and error and, and certainly even the finished product was kind of, uh, worlds apart from what I thought the book would be when I first started it, um, but but it ended up working out, and and now I have the second book underway, which is a completely different process, and and was far more mapped out in in terms of pre planning and outlining and all that stuff, um, and it's just a, a vastly different experience. Um, some of it good, some of it more challenging. Um, so I'm kind of trying to play around a little bit with the creative with my actual creative process and and find out what works the best for me. But in terms of writing that first book, I really had no idea what I was doing. So um, I wanted to, to, like I said, write that first draft as fast as possible and not really be tied down by any sort of outlining or like uh, really concrete planning that I felt like I couldn't break away from. I mean, when you mention research, though, uh, it's a semi-historical like 1920s wrestling novel where mm -hmm. you have to know the subject matter I don't know about in and out, but pretty close to in order to actually like not make random mistakes and not have weird things from like, oh, well, that couldn't be possible in the 20s. I mean, how much did you have to make sure you had that era down before you even started writing the book? Uh, otherwise, you might have to go back and just kind of move things around to make sure it makes sense for the 20s. Right. Um, I had to do a fair amount of research. A lot of it was stuff, you know, knowledge that I came to the to the task already possessing just because I have been a fan of both professional wrestling and kind of like weird archaic historical wrestling for most of my adult life. Uh, and I'm one of those people that gets super nerdy and obsessive about the stuff that I like. So just, you know, for my own edification, really, I, I I've read a lot of wrestling history and, and uh, you know, a, a lot about the, the, the quote unquote business as they say. Yeah. Uh, so I came to the, to the project with some pre-existing knowledge base, but certainly there was a lot of other stuff that I had to research and a lot of other stuff that I had to figure out both before I started and kind of along the way. Um, and one of the things that I did when I was working on this book was I would go work at the university library here in Missoula in the town where I live, which turned out to be a, a an amazing resource to have at my fingertips just because there were so many things that turned out to need some uh, manner of spot research. Just mm. like as I was writing, it would come up, you know, over the course of a day and I would, and I would realize I knew nothing about this, this subject. And I had to go, I would, you know, have to go into the stacks in the library and pull out whatever I could find and, and do enough research at my, you know, at whatever was with whatever was at my disposal in order to kind of like get over that daily hurdle and, and feel like I I could present whatever it was in a realistic way in the book. Um, certainly I don't consider myself to be a historian by any stretch of the imagination. I definitely come down more on the like, uh, uh, like spacey artist side of things. So, uh, my main goal was, just to make all of the historical detail in the book feel organic 
to the world that the book itself creates. I didn't want anything within the book to, you know, jog the reader out of, of the experience or the, like the dream state of actually reading the book. So, you know, more than actual historical accuracy, uh, I just wanted to make it feel all cohesive and all like it fit together. Um, you know, that said, I did try to make it as historically accurate as possible. And once the publisher decided to buy it, it actually got a good historical copy edit from the publisher, which was oh, something wow. that I did. Yeah, I didn't really expect them to do that, but I was super glad that they did. Uh, and they did a good job. Um, there are some inaccuracies in the book that have, I, I guarantee you have been brought to my attention since it's, <laughs> it's publication, but like mostly I think we got it pretty close to right. So that was kind of a bonus with the publisher giving it a historical edit like that? I mean, does that, I mean, to kind of get like the nitty gritty detail of it, like, is that like a cost? Is that something and be like, hey, before you buy something on Amazon, it's like, we can gift wrap this shit for you for like $3. Do you want to do that? Like, what was that exactly like? Um, the, you know, the entire publication process, uh, not only because this was my first time, I was a rookie, I didn't know what to expect, uh, but also because you operate at some, some distance of, of remove from the publishing company. Uh, it, it's all, it, it remains kind of opaque to me as a process, mm. but, uh, this was certainly a huge learning experience in that regard for me. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of just like you're along for the ride once you sell it. They, they do a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, they, they have a process that they follow from the point of purchasing the book to publication. Uh, and, and as the writer, you know, you don't all, you don't get like a, a, a map of what's going to happen. So yeah. you just kind of have to go with the flow. And I didn't know that they would give it a historical copy edit, but the copy editing process in and of itself was pretty, uh, I don't want to say arduous, but it was super thorough, which was yeah. another thing that I was glad for. And the the cop, I mean, copy editors will save your life, man. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm, I was glad that they that they gave it as thorough a copy edit as they did, and I was glad that they that they did so much historical, uh, you know, uh, fact finding and and fact checking to make sure that it was all as close to accurate as they as they could be. But yeah, I didn't know that that was something that that would happen until I got the draft back that are that had those notes in it. So um, I was pleased to see that because they certainly saved me some some mistakes. Yeah, I'd never heard of that before. Uh, you mentioned before when you kind of had that first attempt at a book, you would, you know, written and rewritten that first 100 pages multiple times. So you end up in the situation where you're maybe just throwing away away a lot of past work. And that's something as a writer, I've always struggled with a bit where like, I hate throwing stuff away that might be good but doesn't really work for the situation uh, i know i used to write for a site called GameSpot, which is a, a cbs gaming site um and just going through editing process i love that process but again it's like man i all that work and suddenly it's just vanished and it's not in the final piece uh is there anything you look back from champion of the world during the editing process where like i'm gonna keep this idea this nugget and use it in the future or is that kind of stuff you throw away and you don't even think about anymore no, I think about all of it, and um, I try to waste as little as possible, honestly. Um, and you know, some stuff you you end you do end up losing, just sort of uh, in the natural editing process, uh, whether it be like verbiage that you thought was particularly pleasing, uh, but it gets taken out for some reason down the line, um, and some of that obviously gets lost. You forget about it; it gets lost to history. But uh, uh, I try to reuse everything that I can, honestly, I try, I try to, um, waste as little work as possible. Like you were saying, in fact, uh, that historical book that I tried to write, 
in graduate school that turned out to be a failure was about the late 19 teens in this town, Butte, Montana, where there was a terrible mining disaster in uh, either 1917 or 1918. And that was sort of like the backdrop of the book that I was trying to write. So I had already done a lot of research about that part of the state and about that time period. Um, and when it, so when it came time to figure out where to set and how to write Champion of the World, I set most of the book in Butte several years after the book that I oh, originally yeah. tried to write was set because I had already done a bunch of research and I felt like I already had a handle on that time period in that town. So just in terms of recycling stuff, yeah, I re recycled a ton of existing knowledge and, you know, some plot devices and line by line writing that, that just got absorbed into the new book. Um, and I find that I do that a lot, to be honest with you, whether it be in novel writing or short stories or what have you, just, um, I have a terrible memory. So I try to record everything that I can, you know, whether it be scribbles just on paper or, or like uh, fragmentary notes on my phone or, you know, notes in a word processor document that get saved and then not looked at for years and years. Mm. Because for me, the creative process, it kind of depends on that. Like a lot of times I'll, you know, just by way of example, I'll try to write a short story and it just won't work for whatever reason. It, you know, there's just be something missing. Uh, and so it gets filed away, and then a year or two later, you're working on this totally unrelated thing, and uh, for it just makes you think of this previous piece that you tried to write, and you end up putting the two things together, and somehow it works perfectly. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. the the earlier thing provides uh, some aspect that the newer thing was missing, and it all comes together. So, uh, I guess it's kind of a pack rat. To, mentality in terms of like being creative you just try to keep everything that you've done before because you never know when that when like the creative uh connection will be made that one thing naturally folds into the other or some aspect of it can be absorbed into the other thing but yeah i, I try to keep everything that i do um for that very reason yeah, when I was writing for GameSpot and IGN, every once in a while, if an editor or someone thought that the intro didn't work for this specific game or something, every once in a while I'd file that stuff away and be like, I think I'm not going to reuse this, but I can repurpose this idea that I think is a good nugget that might work in a different situation. Uh, and speaking of covering video games before we were recording, I was talking a bit about how even though MMA and video games are entirely different, there's some similarities in terms of coverage and also in terms of People very often come to us and ask, like, hey, how can I get your job? How can I cover what you cover? Like, how can I, for me, like, get paid to play video games, which is what they think it is. And for you, like, go to events, like UFC events, watch people punch each other in a cage, and then write something about it and get paid. But, like, it's really difficult. <laughs> like, these jobs do not come by easily, and they're very bizarre. So, for you... Uh, how difficult was it to actually make a living talking and writing about MMA, which is this niche sport that, you know, just recently, we're not main. I say we, it's not mainstream yet, but it's approaching that. Uh, how difficult was it to actually kind of get a foot in the door? Um, it was difficult, and, it, you know, it continues to be difficult. I think anybody who works as a, a contractor is probably perennially engaged in the business of trying to cobble together a living. Um, and even for me, it continues to be that, you know, I essentially have two full-time jobs at this point. Uh, one being that I, I'm a lead MMA writer for Bleacher Report and one being that, uh, you know, I'm trying to write this second novel and, and 
get that uh, off to the publisher and, and um, fulfill that the second part of my contract with them and, and frankly get the money for that. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like the new economy really for uh, reporters and, and fiction writers and anyone who gets paid as a, a, a contractor, which is a, a, a huge wrinkle in the new, the new economy and the way that big corporations like to employ people and pay them. Um, and just in terms of getting into MMA writing, it was certainly a step-by-step process for me. Uh, I had been a sports writer at the local newspaper here, you know, starting in about 2002 till about 2008. Uh, and you know, I, I did, I, at the time I was doing a couple of odd jobs, if you will, in, in the MMA world, kind of like just helping out a couple of friends of mine. Uh, and then I ended up, as it turned out, I ended up getting like one small job for one website, which led to a slightly larger job at another website, which led to a slightly larger job at another website, which was just kind of like, uh, you know, jumping from lily pad to lily pad from from tiny sites like MMA Rated that ended up folding, you know, to Cage Potato, which was uh, a bigger deal, but also ended up folding to, you know, going to work for the Sporting News for a while and then going to work for NBC Sports for a while, going to work for ESPN for a while, and now having landed at Bleacher Report. Um, But yeah, it was a a step-by-step process of just continually kind of trying to uh, grow my experience from one thing to the next uh, that has ultimately yielded what passes for full-time work in this, you know, in this industry. Uh, and I feel super fortunate to have that job. And uh, Bleacher Report is far and away the best company that I've ever worked for and treat, treats its writers the best, treats me the best, and frankly treats mixed martial arts the best uh, out of any of the kind of larger corporations that I've worked for. But yeah, it's difficult, man. It's It's hard to do. And like you said, there aren't a ton – of those jobs available and there aren't a ton of those jobs that are going to pay anyone enough money to, to do them as a full-time gig. Uh, and so, yeah, when people ask me how to get into the, get into the business, I always try to respond to those emails or, or talk to the people that want to talk about it. But, um, it's kind of like a cautionary tale really. (laughs) Oh, uh, you know, I, I always try to, uh, you know, just jokingly, one of the first things I will always ask people is, is there anything else that you could do? <laughs> uh, because if you can be a scientist, man, go be a scientist. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, the, the, I think the people that wind up in this work do it because it's the only damn thing they can do. Uh, and that certainly applies to me. But, yeah, I mean, for people that really have that passion and want to follow the career path, um, it's definitely out there. It's definitely doable. It's not impossible. Uh, but it is a weird closed world and, um, you know, the top of the heap is, is still, uh, just, you know, being gainfully employed in this niche sport. It's not like you're going to come into this thing and probably make a million dollars. Are there a lot of freelance opportunities for MMA journalists? Because for me, I, I've never been a full-time freelancer because that terrifies me. Uh, yeah. but I at least had a period where if I wanted to, I felt like I had enough contacts with, you know, the different sites I had, the different people I was writing for. I was like, I think I could do this if I really buckled down. I see like Chuck Minnenhall is doing some work for The Ringer and while he's also full-time at MMA Fighting. Uh, but I feel like most of the stuff I see is from full-time staff. I mean, is, yeah. do you see a lot of freelance work out there available? Um, there's some, but there probably wouldn't be enough to just try to, uh, uh, 
like cobble it together to make it to make it work. I um I would only go back to it if I was forced to. Uh it's it's a difficult thing to do, man, to to just kind of be a floater and and try to make that work. Especially and it depends on where you are in life, what your situation is. You know, I, I, if I were a younger person and single and and didn't have a bunch of children, I would probably uh, I would probably be more open to it. Uh but yeah, especially in this industry where those quasi full-time jobs are so rare, I feel like if you get one, you have to hold on to it until it evaporates in some way. Yeah, it's it's the exact same with what I do. It's just there's the, the people who've had it forever because they don't want to give it up because it might be the last opportunity they get. Uh, speaking just of the UFC, how strange is it to cover an MMA as an industry where that, that major power, that main league, to a certain extent, from what I've gathered, I've watched so many different UFC events, so many different post-fight pressers, so many different Dana White scrums. It feels like the company actively thinks that the press are more of an extension of PR rather than, you know, actual journalists, actual people reporting on the facts. Is it difficult to report on MMA without being blacklisted by the UFC or put on some sort of list unless you kind of fall in line with them? I mean, you look at Josh Gross, you look at Ariel Hawani and the different cases of uh, Loretta Hunt, what's happened to them? Like, can it be tough thinking like if I write the wrong piece, suddenly I'm on some sort of list and my coverage is kind of cut short? Yeah, it can be. Uh, I try not to think about it. My advice to other people is to not think about it. You have to be truthful. And, you know, especially for me, I'm essentially at this point employed as a, like a column writer and an occasional feature features writer. So I get paid to be, to dispense my opinion more often than not. Yeah. Um, you can't really worry about it because, uh, number one, you have to be true to yourself and write the things that you actually believe and the things that you actually feel. And number two, there's no way to um, forecast what is going to you know, be the straw that breaks the camel's back with a, a, a company that's as erratic as the UFC. Uh you know, lots of people have tried to work with them. Lots of people have tried to make nice with the company and it almost never works just because you can never tell from one day to the next, what's going to be the thing that, that makes them mad. Uh, and the only way to, to counter that is to not worry about it. You just have to do the thing that you do and be, be true and honest with yourself and kind of let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, this, uh, especially, in the last four or five years, now that almost everything that the company does is available online from press conferences to open workouts to uh, media days and stuff like that, it's not as good as being there live, but at the same time, you can you can do it. Yeah. You, you don't necessarily need to be there. So at least in my own mind, I try not to make access – I try not to turn access into a uh, – a thing that can be weaponized against me. I know yeah. that sounds that, that's that's overstating it, but uh, I you know I I don't I don't care about it honestly. Like I haven't been to a UFC event since 2011 or 2012, oh, uh, and or maybe 2013. I think I went to a couple of them when I was working for ESPN. But like it's 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 overrated, honestly, in terms of like being able to do the job. Uh, everyone should go to to several of them, but if you don't have a job that requires you to do all the travel to go do it. Like eventually I think most of the, most people come around to the idea that, that you know, they can handle most of the things they need to do from home. Do you think there is a risk though, with how the UFC treats journalists that the people who are let into the press conference, the people who do stick around or the people who might write puff pieces or, you know, 
clap during a press conference or uh i mean when you look at video game journalism which is a weird term in itself but it, it we, certain video game journalists you run into the issue of you grow up as i'm a fan of video games you become this rabid fan and then you just try to find any way to get paid to either make games or talk about games or write about games so you kind of lean more on the positive side because this is something you're super passionate about you are again you're a fan you're enamored by it so a lot of the coverage of reviews or otherwise it's really positive so is there because mma is also this rabid fan base maybe someone who's super in mma loves you know the competition wants to write about it do you think they can kind of become overly positive in their coverage because of that and because of the structure of how the ufc sees journalists yeah it it uh it depends on the uh on the individual i think uh and that's a hard job. It really is to go to those events. The travel is hard. The schedule is hard. One of the things, uh, one of the reasons that I ultimately became uh, dis- disenchanted with the actual live experience is that it's really hard to do anything interesting or worthwhile uh, with a press conference or with a, uh, an open workout or with a, a one-on-one fighter interview around uh, media day. Um and you know that's the reason why big companies like to do those things. That's one of the reasons why uh, the the sports press conference exists across all sports, and and why the uh you know the White House press briefing exists in the way that it exists yeah. is that it's it's hard to do though to to um pursue a cogent line of questioning. It's hard to ask tough questions in those situations, and it's hard to um get anything unique that you can then turn into uh. uh a story that is going to offer readers anything that is not exactly the same as what everybody else is offering. Um, and everybody approaches that differently. And there's always going to be the danger that, that some people are going to uh, either through in their own incompetence or just their own uh, personalities, you know, spin things in, in a explicitly positive way. I think there's a, a danger that people are going to spin things in an explicitly negative way. Uh, you don't all, you don't, you don't want to be the person that does that always does one of those two things. You want to, uh, you know, it, it, be fair and be objective as much as you can and, and just try to do the best job that you can. But I actually have a ton of respect for the people who go and do that work yeah. week in and week out because it's, it's not easy. And, you know, some of the w- better known figures in the mixed martial arts media industry t- uh, face a lot of flack and get criticized a lot publicly. Uh, and it's that's never been a road I've really wanted to go down, and it just feels like those people, will do, you know, everybody's doing the best they can. And honestly, for a sport that exists at a you know removed from the mainstream as much as MMA does, I think that there are some really good professionals out there covering it. Yeah, and uh, of course, you're not rooting for the UFC itself because again, if you're covering it, you're not really taking sides. But has it been heartening to see when the Fox deal happened? The Reebok deal's been a mess, but. There's a certain level of leg- legitimacy now to the UFC, to MMA as a whole. You're in, you know, in New York now, everything like that. Was there ever a moment before that, as you're covering this, as you're kind of putting so much, uh, so many man hours and covering it, where you're like, I don't know if this thing's going to be around in ten years? Did you always feel like, even if there wasn't a Fox deal or if you weren't in New York, it's the UFC, MMA as a whole would still be around to cover? You know, I've always believed in the sport. Um just because I think it's such an interesting and you know fascinating athletic endeavor, really, when you strip it down to its barest essentials. I've always looked at the uh, 
looked at the the what mixed martial arts offers and and figured that it was going to work in one way or another. You know, it's not a it's not a sport that's going to appeal to everyone, but if you are a person who's open to the idea of combat sports and who likes, you know, boxing, football, whatever, the, you know, co- full contact uh athletic events, I think mixed martial arts is incredible really uh for what it it offers in terms of sheer diversity of action and you know both like very visceral thrills but also a lot of nuance so i think it appeals on on a lot of different levels both you know it appeals in terms of pure athletics and i think it also appeals in terms of uh intellectually really for for people who really understand everything that they're watching um so i believed in that i i thought that as long as it got a fair shake from state and national regulators, it was always going to be a certain kind of success. Um, it has, I, I don't know that I want to say it has surpassed my expectations in terms of growth, but the UFC has certainly done a commendable job building the sport to the level that it is, that it currently enjoys. Uh, and that has taken a different shape than I expected it to. I feel like the, even now the sport is in kind of a strange place where uh, it is big enough that mainstream commentators and mainstream <laughs> sports shows want to talk about it, but it's not quite big enough where those people are experts on the sport. Yeah. So the kind of, uh, the kind of commentary, the kind of analysis you get from, uh, the biggest, you know, from the biggest venues, from the, the places that are going to provide the most exposure it, to, to people who uh, have lived inside the quote unquote MMA bubble for years, it seems very shallow. And it seems like they're still, um, operating from a place where they don't, don't know that much about the actual sport. And yet they, they really want to pontificate on it at this point. Um, so that's very strange. Uh, and as I, you know, as I talk about with Ben folks on my own podcast, sometimes that makes you wonder, uh, whether the, the, kind of like decade-long pell-mell push for mainstream acceptance that the UFC and MMA have have put themselves through were real, was really worth it. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that yet. I don't think we know yet. Um, but it's certainly uh, the, the idea of like more exposure and coming into the mainstream has evolved in a, in a way that I feel is different than what I expected. So that's kind of very weird. Does that mainstream exposure when it gets on those, when Shannon Sharp suddenly is saying that Nate Diaz will never go back down to lightweight because he's too big, when MMA tiptoes into the mainstream, does that sort of coverage, do you laugh at it or does it actually bug you? Because you know you talk about everyone has a hot take about Ronda Rousey or the only time anyone's talking about MMA is when Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor are in the conversation. Is that just one of those like roll your eyes at it or move on or does that kind of frustrate you in terms of like this is all you're going to talk about? Yeah, um, you know, mostly I think it's funny. Mostly I roll my eyes at it. Uh, the times that it gets frustrating is, you know, maybe as a callback to the to what we were talking about just a minute ago, is that um, a lot of those mainstream sports commentators or or like sports interview shows uh, are more susceptible to just following the company line of a promoter, whether, whether that be the UFC or whether it be, you know, Bellator MMA or anybody else who's, who definitely has a, a point of view to pitch. Uh, a lot of those like mainstream interview shows or like, uh, you know, mainstream sports talk radio or whatever, uh, 
that they know just enough that they want to have those people on the show, but they don't know enough to know when those people are just kind of spinning their own reality. And that's the part that sometimes frustrates me is that you hear, you know, UFC president Dana White or, or somebody else go on uh, ESPN radio or Fox sports radio, and they just kind of lay out their own uh, worldview really. And, you know, those of us who have covered the sport for a long time know that, that, that that's not always the objective truth. And so it's weird to uh, hear people who work for like the largest sports journalistic, you know, the, the largest sports journalism organizations uh, kind of softball that a lot of the time, which I think is the state where the sport is at now. Um, so that's the only part of it that is frustrating for me. Mostly it's, it's just kind of a trifle to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so at, at this point I have like this certain list of podcasts on uh, my phone where it's like every week listen to you know an, the new episode of blank uh comment event podcast has broken into that list where it's like my tuesday or wednesday go to the gym and listen to it every single week for you when you were first kind of conceiving it and thinking about it was it one of those on a whim fuck it i'm gonna start a podcast with ben folks uh and kind of what were your expectations did you think it would be i'm not saying it is the top podcast in the world but did you think it would be as big as it's become no, um, it's, it's, uh, it was, uh, uh, it, it was, and continues to be a total mom and pop operation between me and, and Ben. Uh, it was honestly his wife's idea. Oh, uh, yeah, she was, and you know, uh, Ben's wife is a, is a writer. She, we met her in graduate school. Uh, she's part of our, our writers group. Um, that is, you know, it was among the people that, that, edited and read my first novel when I was still creating it. Um, and she's super funny and super talented and <laughs> is like, has worked for a long time in marketing and stuff like that. So she oftentimes has these brilliant ideas that would never <laughs> otherwise occur to a couple of lunkheads like he and I, and she was like, why don't you guys have a podcast since all, you know, you sit around and talk about MMA anyway, just record it and like put it on the internet, make it a thing. So we did. And, um, when we got into it, it was another one of those things where I didn't I didn't know anything about podcasts. Like I uh, I've played music, I play in in bands, you know, for a lot of the a lot of my adult life. So I have some audio experience, and that kind of uh, made me the natural uh, technician of the show. And so I had to figure out everything of how to 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 do it from the ground up. And we didn't know what we would talk about. We didn't know what our format would be. We didn't know if anybody would listen to it. We didn't know, you know, we certainly, we never even thought about like having a sponsor or, or uh, making any money. And we, we still don't think, you know, think along those lines, but like uh, we're, I'm, it's exceeded my expectations. It, it, it has, it's been a wonderful experience. It continues to be, uh, I couldn't be happier with it. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't have the biggest audience in the world, but we have a super, we've been super lucky to have a very smart, a very engaged audience, a very open-minded audience. Uh, and, you know, not to sound like the current president of the United States, but like we have all the best people, <laughs> I think. Uh, we, for whatever reason, we've just gotten this wonderful listenership that I enjoy a lot. Uh, and I didn't know that it would be like that. And so that's been, you know, very rewarding and, and it has been rewarding in ways that I never really anticipated, honestly. 
did it feel weird to put yourself out there in a different way than like you know writing for ESPN or Bleacher Report or anything like that? Of course, you're you're putting your words out there. Now you're actually like voice you know all your opinions out there uh, along with Ben. It, it's very different. Like, is was this was it weird initially doing that? And has it kind of been like rewarding in a different way than writing, where people now know you for something other than what you write? Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of people think the co-main event podcast is our job. That's <laughs> been the, the strangest part of it. Like, especially, you know, Ben working for uh, USA Today and MMA Junkie, he still travels more than I do. Uh, and so he goes out to, to these UFC events occasionally. And he says people never come up to him and talk to him about the stuff that he's written for MMA Junkie. They always come up to him and they talk about the co-main event podcast, uh, which to me is a great compliment. And to him, I think, is frustrating. Uh but yeah, it's it's uh, it was weird. Obviously, you can you've been we've been doing this show together, you and I, for forty five minutes now. Like you can tell, I'm not a re- incredibly polished speaker. I'm not a broadcast guy. I never thought that I would have a job or a you know a, a popular endeavor where I talk on a microphone. Um, and so yeah, it's kind of unpolished, and it's maybe that's part of its appeal. I don't know. But yeah, it's 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 a very strange, very weird experience for me. Uh, but one that I continue to enjoy. And at this point, it's like a beast that we can't even control. I don't think we could, I don't think we could stop doing it if we wanted to, we would get hounded by people on the internet. Uh, so yeah, we're definitely uh, still all the way invested in that. No, I, I get slightly bummed if it doesn't show up like around the normal time. So I, I definitely don't think you could stop recording it. Uh, and th- I think the format is a big part of it. You know, the different rounds, the different kind of, let's say, recurring character and different things like that. And a uh, funny thing, way back when, the first time I ever emailed you guys, which I've emailed multiple times, um, I included a small indie website. I was heading back then so you'd read it on air, and you did. So this is me paying you back in terms of promoting yourself. Uh, <laughs> what can we look forward uh, from you for the rest of the year? You talk about the second book, you know, trying to hit the different deadlines and everything like that. Is that something that's planned for a few years down the road, the end of this year? And do you have any like long form things you could talk about in the work for Bleacher Report? Um, you know, the second book is still very much underway. Uh, I was kind of hoping that I would have it done in time for it to have a publication date during during 2017. I don't think I will at this point, unfortunately. Uh, I, I I hope to get it done in time for them to put it on the calendar sometime in 2018, hopefully sometime early in 2018. We'll just have to see how it goes. Uh, and, uh, so that, that I hope is a thing that, that happens sooner rather than later, but the publishing industry, uh, obviously operates at its own pace. Uh, and it operates at a pace that's way different than, than daily journalism. Um, and you know what, with, with Bleacher Report stuff, the role that I have fallen into kind of at this point is just sort of the like seat of the pants, daily MMA uh, commentary stuff. Um, so I don't have any like big long form features that I'm working on at the moment. I do want to try to do more of that this year since uh, last year I didn't get to do very much of it at all just because of various um, – just because of the book, frankly, and, and like a lot of other professional and personal obligations. So I would like to do – you know, some more of that stuff this year. I did, I wrote about Chael Sonnen for Bellator last week before his fight with TD Ortiz, which I, I enjoyed and kind of reminded me that, uh, I want to get back to doing some more of that longer form, uh, reporting, reporting and writing. Um, uh, but nothing on the, on the, uh, nothing on the docs docket yet. So I'm going to have to kind of try to figure that out with my editor. Yeah. Hopefully some lifestyle pieces for 2017 on the horizon. Um, I, 
<laughs> so, so last thing, uh, where can people find you on social media and uh, what is the website for the podcast? Uh, you can find me on social media at Chad Dundas, just my name, all one word is my Twitter account. Uh, my website for my, my own writing stuff is chaddundas.com. Uh, and then you can find the podcast at comainevent.com, uh, where all of the episodes are, are archived. All right. Great. Well, Chad, thank you so much for doing this. I'm not kidding when I say I have like added what's really going on and like <laughs> just saying and stuff like that to my regular lexicon. So uh, I really, really enjoy the podcast, enjoy what you do. And yeah, I don't talk MMA on this show often, but I mean, I watch too many events. I'm the, the shit eating wild man who's watching weird Russian MMA at like all hours of the day. So I, I appreciate totally what you do and you coming on. Oh, man, I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks again, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.